Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Andrew Rogenkamp. Andrew is the COO of Commerce Vision. Commerce Vision is an Australia-based B2B e-commerce platform that also offers order management, field merchandising, and CRM modules. We had a fantastic conversation about what makes B2B e-commerce unique and the solutions required to give B2B merchants all the tools they need to be successful. Enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have another amazing guest lined up for you today. I think we're going to have a fantastic conversation. I'd love to welcome Andrew Rogenkamp to the pod. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Jason. Great to be here. It's great to have you along for the ride today. And I reached out to you because I've what I've been trying to do is trying to – there's not a lot of people in the e-commerce space that specialize in B2B. And when I realized that you specialized in B2B, I was like, man, got to get Andrew on the podcast to talk about B2B e-commerce. But before we get into all of that, you have been running Commerce Vision for almost 23 years now. That's a very long time. You also work with the B2B e-commerce association out of Australia. And I've had, look, I've had Brett on the pod and look, I'm really impressed with what BEA has been doing, especially over the last 12 months or so. And it's really, it's actually started to come to life. But why don't you tell us how you even came to be in the e-commerce space to begin with, to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jason. Originated in the ERP world. So working for a company called Pronto down here in Australia, who's one of the larger ERP vendors based out of Melbourne and worked for Pronto for about, I think about 10 or 15 years. And then one of the guys that was working with Prono, and in fact, I went to school with him, so we've known each other. We were school, school mates, and we happened to work at the same company. He decided about 23 years ago that e-commerce was going to be a big thing. And this was a, that, that's a fairly large sort of guess at that stage. And he decided to create, pretty smart guy, one of those developers that was just a genius and went out and developed a e-commerce application that was integrated into Pronto, which... 23 years ago to have a fully integrated e-commerce application into an ERP was fairly unheard of. We started, I left Pronto about a year later and started selling that. And yeah, we grew the business up over 20 years and got it to a point about two or three years ago where we were actually lucky enough to be able to sell it to private equity. So we're now owned by Potentia Capital, who are a tech-based private equity firm here in Australia that have specialised in just buying tech companies. So In terms of the B2B space, though, and I guess ERP is a pretty good transition into e-commerce, right? Because if you think about an e-commerce system, I don't like to call them B2B ERP portals because they're much more than that. But at the guts of a of a e-commerce system, especially a B2B e-commerce system, is business rules, business processes, and all of those sort of things that essentially an ERP system is. It's just not meant for you know people outside the business to use. So yeah, over those 20 years, look, we do have B2C customers, but we're predominantly B2B. We see in the B2C market, there's a lot of competition that you've got your Shopify's and your Magento's and big commerce and all of that. Whereas B2B, there's not a lot of platforms that are doing B2B well. And that's what we really specialize in. Yeah, 23 years in e-commerce now, so getting old. 
What's interesting about this, and I think I'm at least as old as you, so if you're getting old, then I'm definitely getting <laughs> old. But uh, what I've seen, and especially since I've started to specialize in B2B even more since I started my own independent consulting practices, there's just not a lot of us out there that specialize in the B2B no. space, both from when we think about it through the lens of consultants, when we think about it through the lens of agencies, when we think it through, about it through the lens of commerce platforms, when we think about it even through the lens of ERPs. Some ERPs do a lot of B2B functions better than others. Some of them are more retail-focused ERPs like the Prontos of the world yep. that have a strong focus on uh, the pause integrations, et cetera, to make mm. retail seamless from an ERP perspective. And I've had systems that have had to integrate with Pronto before, and they are very strong in the ANZ region. But when we start thinking about all of the additional nuances that are involved in B2B commerce, not just from the e-commerce platform perspective, but from an operational perspective, from a back office system perspective, it is a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more complex. Business processes tend to be much longer in nature. They tend to be, they tend to be based on negotiated trading terms. They, yep. they tend to be based on negotiated price lists and catalog sets. And there's just so much involved, I think, when we think of B2B that for someone who has been deep diving into this for 23 years, that's a very long time to be focused on B2B e-commerce. And look, I have heard of you guys before. I'll be honest, I haven't ever used Commerce Vision before, but I've absolutely heard of the platform. And how have you seen the B2B e-commerce space, not so much from a competitor landscape perspective, but how have you seen the demand for B2B e-commerce functionality? How have you seen that evolve over, say, especially the last, say, five years? Yeah, so I guess when we started, some of the features that even our competitors still don't have now, we had 20 years ago. Yeah, certainly COVID brought it all home for people that we'd been talking to people for years. Have you considered B2B e-commerce? Yeah, I just don't think my customers would buy online. It's B2B and I've got my reps out on the road and they take all of my sales and things like that. And then it really brought it home in that COVID period and our sales, our sales of our platform that through that period really accelerated quite a bit. and. I think then they thought, actually, my customers will buy online and I can, and nothing's changed with the reps since then. Like the reps are still out on the road. They're just not taking orders like they used to. And it's become a different environment. And then they start to think, what else can I do online? What else can I allow my customers to self-serve? So obviously transactions going through an e-commerce platform is the obvious thing. I want to be able to take orders. But a lot of our customers use the B2B platform for a lot more than that. We've got one customer that actually uses it to allow their own customers to stock take their products within their, they sell to dentists and dental surgeries and in, into that industry. So we've got some stock take functionality that they can actually walk around and say, I've got six of these, two of these, and not only of the products that our customer is selling, but all of the other products that are in that they need to buy in that dental practice. So it allows our customer to then channel those orders to those other suppliers, but allows our customer to really give them a point of difference in terms of what they're giving to that customer. It's not just an e-commerce platform, it's part of their business systems that they're supplying. So we see our customers taking things to the next level, integrating into their customers' ERP systems. So as zero is a very large, small business sort of package here in ANZ and around the world. And for our customers to be able to say, not only can you place an order on our system, we're gonna shoot the invoice back into your system. 
And it's all about that productivity piece for our customers. And that's what we've seen in B2B in the last couple of years is people just concentrating, businesses concentrating on productivity and how can they improve their productivity and have their people do more value-added things than the old, what we call swivel chair commerce, where they've got a piece of paper and they're turning around and punching that order in. So yeah, that's what we've seen. And we've, there's a couple, we just don't do the e-commerce. We've got another product called Lucy that takes PDF purchase orders and puts them into the e-commerce as well, because one of the challenges about B2B e-commerce, and we see it as there's three levels of customers. You've got your ones that want to um, deal with you via EDI, technology that's now 40 years old, but very much in the mainstay at the top end of town. If you want to sell to customers here in Australia, like Bunnings or Myers or Coles or, or the Warehouse like that, Group it, or any of those, yeah, any of those EDI. EDI is going to be the only way you're going to be able to talk to those guys. Then you'll be using an Edifact document to do that or a CXML or something like that. Then you've got the ones at the smaller end that will say, yeah, I'll get on your website and purchase and things like that. And then you've got the ones in the middle that have got their own ERP systems that are gonna raise a purchase from a reorder program that just says you need 10 of these, 20 of these, and the purchase order might be four or five pages long of those products. They're not gonna get on your B2B e-commerce system and rekey that. So that middle technology is about taking that PDF demand and bringing it into the e-commerce, in, into the ERP system as well. And, and that's what B2B Omnichannel is about, is trying to take every channel that your customers are gonna deal with. And that's where we've seen things going, is to the customer's goal of getting nearly 100% of their orders digitally is a real goal these days. It is. And are you seeing also some of your merchants asking for punch-out type technology as well? Yeah, for which sure. Obviously, some of those, because I don't consider zero an ERP, but it is definitely an accounting system. And especially yep. some of those small and medium-sized end business customers would be generating their PO inside zero and then that, spitting that out to a PDF, which is what you're saying. You have the system yeah. to be able to do yeah. the OCR and be able to import that in. Yeah, we're uh, not doing the OCR. It's only the, it's only the true PDFs, which is 98% Yeah, But the on the punch-out side, we see that a lot in certainly the big end of town. So if you're dealing with any large mining company here in Australia, Post, Qantas, all of those big end, all of the, any government, you know, especially Department of Education in New South Wales, two and a half thousand schools. We've got lots of customers in the office products and that are selling into education. And again, if you don't have punch out, you can't operate. And often when we, a lot of our customers use that punch out as a weapon in their sales armory, they'll go into large businesses and say, we fully support punch out, CXML punch out, OCI punch out. If you want to use that, we can support that. And then because what then Punch-Out actually does is actually causes a problem for our customers if they don't have something at the other end to support it. Because what happens is all of a sudden, okay, I do the Punch-Out, I'm in our customer's website, and then the order goes back to the, to the customer to go through their yellow brick road of approvals. And then you're saying, oh, hold it, how am I going to get this into my system now? And that's, you can either get it in via EDI or what some, a lot of our customers do, they just send them the PDF and our PDF technology will then bring it into the e-commerce system. And it's interesting, I saw, I was speaking to a customer many years ago, they're one of the massive electrical retailers and like they deal mainly with the trade, right? So they said, if any of their customers want to deal with them via EDI, they said they will only do that if they punch out in the first place. Because one of the dramas about EDI is that if your pricing, if the pricing between the two trading partners is not exactly the same, then EDI is just going to reject it. So I'll send you an order for $50. You say it's $55. 
So you reject it, it comes back to me, I'm saying it's $50 and it just goes round in circles. So to start that journey with punch out means that I've got the price right, I know I've got the product code, it's a valid product code, and it makes that whole journey a whole lot simpler. So they just made a rule, unless you're punching out, you can't do EDI with this. Wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so for mm. those that may be listening that maybe haven't heard or fully understand and appreciate what Punch-Out is, as I understand it effectively, it allows your catalog to be integrated directly into their procurement system, your customer's procurement system, so that the catalog gets synced in near real time, basically every single time they fire up their procurement system and they want to pull down your catalog. They're pulling down the SKUs, they're pulling down the pricing, they're pulling down any spec sheets that you make available via Punch-Out. Yep. They're pulling that down in near real time so that then, they can effectively select from your catalog, generate the PO on the backside of that, and then obviously in a full closed 360-degree loop punch-out, mm. then that order can come back through the punch-out system right. as well. Yep. And in your case, the return trip can also be via EDI or it can be via PDF. There's multiple yep. ways that the, yeah, that the order can actually be placed. But yep. I guess in terms of what you're saying is the punch-out system helps to ensure that when the procurement specialist or the buyer or the catalog category manager, whoever it is, on the B2B customer side is actually making that purchase, that they're actually bringing down in real time an accurate set of inventory, pricing, SKUs, product names, all the information that they need to actually complete the order. They've actually got that in real time. Yeah, that's right. So the punch out process actually starts within the buyer's procurement system and they'll just click on a button to say, I want to buy office products. And it actually opens up the normal website, the normal e-commerce website. So there's no integration of the catalog per se from back into their procurement system. What they're actually doing is they call your website and automatically logs them in. And as part of that URL that they call our site with is that it says, this is the URL I need to give, you need to give the data back to. So they're just browsing through your normal catalog. But the beauty of that is you're in control of what products that they can see, what the pricing is. They can see the live availability and then it comes back into their system. So at the end, they'll say, return that to my procurement system, bang, and in a, in a second, they've got a requisition in front of them that they can then send through their yellow brick road of approvals. And it saves somebody, you imagine a customer like BHP, they're buying from Blackwoods, they're buying stationery, they're buying from everybody. And they've got a whole lot of business processes that they need to follow about approvals as to who, there's no way they can rely on 15 different or 100 different vendors to be able to keep that information up to date as to who can approve anything. But on the converse side, they don't want to have to take 100 vendors products and and bring that into their system either. So punch out is this beautiful sort of hybrid, it's almost like a hybrid yeah. model, right? Yeah, the two systems can just nicely talk to each other. And, uh, and yeah, we see that a lot. And customers, some of our customers aren't big businesses. They're $10 million businesses. And they're competing with the Blackwoods of the world because they can go in with Punch-Out and other technologies like that. Yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense. And I guess what it sounds like from your platform perspective, you can support EDI, you can support Punch-Out, you can support self-service e-commerce as well. And yep. within your platform, one of the things I've seen, as you rightly point out, is that oftentimes on the B2B buyer side, there's a complex web of both approved buyers, senior buyer, junior buyer, procurement authorization specialist. You know, they could even have a location-specific uh, buying hierarchy. So, so in right. the B2C to C world, we've got a situation where one customer, one email address, one account. In the B2B mm. world, it's almost never like that. We actually have an umbrella no. organization that's actually doing the buying and paying the bills. 
but we yep. have people within that organization that are authorized to have a sub-account, what is effectively a sub-account underneath that umbrella account, and they have different levels of authority to be able to make buying decisions and buying authorities up to a certain value and yep. have pre-authorized shopping carts and effectively what is the equivalent of a wish list in the B2C world or shopping list. Mm, and so yeah. we've got these nuances in the B2B world that B2C and D2C just never, ever have to think about. No, never, ever. Like things like, for instance, I guess one of the, there's about five big things in B2B that we often say B2B ain't B2C, cross the C out and put a B, right? It is yeah. quite different. And it's not just, you often see some of these B2C platforms get in and say, we now support B2B because we can do customer, customer groups and price, price lists. Customer and groups it. and price lists, and you can put things on an account. And we're going, oh, really? Is that all you think it is? And I, one of the big ones is we call it stock security. It could be called product restrictions or restricted products. But we've got some customers that have got over 17 million rules about who can see what products. And so when a customer logs in, a good example is the Australian federal government, they normally buy IT equipment off what's called a panel. So there'll be about three big IT companies in Australia that can supply that. So when they're buying office products off one of our customers, they'll go to them and say, look, you can't, don't, you're not allowed to offer any of those PCs to, to, to any of our government departments. So that you go, okay, all right, what's that mean? So there's about 750 products they say you can't show, and there's about 3,000 customers. So Instantly, I've got millions of rules there about who can buy and who can't buy. And there's rules about we've got lots of customers. We've got customers that sell brand products. One of them sells Maxxis tires for, I'm not sure if you're aware of that brand, but it's like the biggest yeah, brand yeah. in four, um, four, four drive tires off road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but there's only certain dealers that are allowed to buy them. So it's called product exclusivity. So you say that these eight dealers can buy these products, which means that everybody else is automatically excluded. So you've got inclusions, you've got exclusions, you've got exclusivity. And not only do you have to obey all of those rules, you've got to so not show them the products. You've got to make sure that they don't show up in any search results and all of that. And so it becomes a challenge when somebody says, oh, can I use Algolia? And you go, yeah, you can use Algolia, but how does it know about all these business rules about what can be bought? So you can use Algolia, but then Algolia might give us the results back to say, here's all the products that meet those results. And then we've got to go, well, can the customer actually see any of them? And we products? have to filter those on our platform side before, exactly. before we show the search then, results page. Exactly. And then we have to say, okay, you've given us back 30 results based on that, and they can't see any of those 30. So we now have to go and ask you for more results and get those back. And so that's one of the complexities. The other complexity, as you mentioned before, is pricing. And often I see pricing is really, oh, we can do customer by product, but it's way more complex than that. Lots of our customers have. So if you think of any dimension on a customer, it could be the customer code, it could be the bill to code, it could be a marketing flag, it could be a group, it could be a warehouse. You think of anything on the customer and then you think of anything on the product. It could be the product code, a product group, a product class. And you can then co combine any of them and then you could have nine quantity breaks on that. And then you could have some rules about look at this price rule first, look at this one second, look at that one third. Unless, of course, you find a contract price, in which in time you find a contract price, then break out of that and do that. And you start your head starts to spin about all of these different rules. And th the crazy thing is it's got to be able to not only work out all of these products, what they can see, and work out what the price they get is, and then render the page, and now with Google PageSpeed Insights breathing down our neck, if you don't get a score of 80, you've got to do all that in 300 milliseconds. That's where B2B is at, is that customers are expecting now B2C speeds 
on sites that are doing super complex. On a B2C site, you just get the price from the product master table and you just show them all the products. It's one product, one price. It's an, yeah. Price is an attribute of the product. It's not an attribute of the customer. Whereas in B2B, exactly. it's an attribute yeah. of the customer. Yeah, and the complexity around that is is super complex and they're the difficult things to manage in in B2B that people just don't really get. And then, as you say, then there's business rules about approval. So I go to check out, can I actually approve this order? If I can't approve this order, does it go to somebody else to approve it? And some of our customers deal with some of the large governments here in Australia. And I don't know how they ever order product in government because it's it goes from me and then it goes to somebody else and that person can approve it, it goes to somebody else. And then eventually you get your REMA paper. But yeah, there are complex approval rules in all these businesses as well. And the other thing that I'm seeing a lot of and a lot more of, particularly since COVID, because what I'm seeing is that you know what used to live in a sales rep's head now has to be digitalized, right? Oh, that's well, right. that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Bob or Jane down the road. That's right. We've got a special agreement with them. That's right. I know yep. that when they place an order with me and they send me a CSV and I punch it into my ERP, oh, that's right. I give them an extra 10% off on this category of products or this specific product. Or when they order 20 or more, then they get a special discount. That's right. We don't have that documented anywhere. Mm. But I, as the sales rep, that's part of my relationship building with that customer. And, and that's part of the yeah. special trading relationship that we have. Mm. And the other thing that I'm saying is that that things like MOQs or indent ordering, yeah, minimum or orders, group ordering, yeah, group buying, order, yeah. also not, not only tiered pricing, but we have mm. also incremental at the cart, meaning that, okay, here's how – here's what the discount you get from quantity 1 to 10 or 10 to 20 or 10 to 50 or 100 to 200 or whatever it is. But then in addition to that, we only want you to be able to add to cart blocks of 20 of this item yep. or Ordering 30 of this quantities. item or 60 of yep. this item or whatever it is, right? Yep. So when we start thinking about not, – it's not just, I think, pricing or catalog exclusivity by customer or price lists by customer or discounts by customer. But then we have this whole thing around – volume in how we manage volumetric purchasing and what that looks like to us as a business because every single customer will be slightly different. And what I'm seeing out there is that oftentimes they want to have different groups of MOQs depending on the tier of the customer. Meaning if they're a, if they're a giant customer, then that MOQ is pretty much as high as it gets. They can only buy, their MOQ is 100 units. And when they add to cart, they have to add it in blocks of 100. Whereas their small and medium-sized customers, maybe their MOQ is 20 and they can add to cart in blocks of 20. So we when we think of the complexity of B2B, there's so much more to it, especially when a lot of B2B brands that are manufacturers. Now, if they're a wholesaler or distributor, it usually is a slightly different story, but very rarely do you have one that is just that. They're oftentimes, they're maybe a hybrid. They manufacture some things, they import some things, they wholesale some things, they distribute some things. They're usually a bit of a hybrid model, and that's an additional complexity in the B2B world. But when we think about business process that a lot of their customers have combined with the business process that the merchant themselves has, particularly in the area of indent. And I'd like to speak to that just for just a second, because in the B2C world, we don't, except for special drops, maybe where somebody pays in advance for an item, indent is a normal part of many B2B businesses. Sure. So in other yeah. words, especially okay, now uh, with the cost of capital being a lot higher, stocks going oh, down. They, they yeah. will only make to order effectively. And mm. what they'll tell their customers is, okay, you don't have to buy an MOQ of a hundred your MOQ might only be 10 units, but we have to receive total orders across all of our customer base of 100 units before we will make 
well, before we'll ma- effectively make that item or import that item and then be able to complete the order for you. Yep. And so being able to display that to the customer and say, okay, the indent, total indent value is 100 units of this thing. We have 20 units that have already been ordered by somebody, anybody, and we now have to have, we have to receive orders for another 80 units. So you can either place an order for 80 units or you can place an order for 40. Or wait for somebody else, yeah. Exactly. And it's that level of detail and it is that level of messaging. And then when we think about some of these guys are doing importing, some of them are doing manufacturing, some of them are doing distribution, and then some of them are doing hybrid drop shipping. So some of the items that they sell are actually coming from another supplier. Sometimes they're coming overseas. Sometimes they're coming domestic. So I I guess I said all that to say that messaging – during the buying process or even during the browsing process becomes much more mission critical in the B2B world than in the B2C world. In the B2C world, pretty much it's enough to say, we have it in stock, we don't have it in stock. And if we don't have it in stock, you're likely to get it in two weeks. That's about as far as most B2C sites go. But in the B2B world, that does not cut it. Yeah, because in the B2B world, they're part of that whole supply chain, right? And so they've got to be able to be as transparent as possible as they can. And back to what you were saying about the reps having that all in their head is what B2B e-commerce systems actually do for customers is it brings them, not only gives them that e-commerce system, but it also massively improves the quality of their data. We had a customer many years ago that when we said, we've done all the integration, but all the pricing is coming up as zero. And they said, oh, yeah, the reps know the price. And we're going, well, you're going to have to, that's got to change on an e-commerce website, right? And so they came from having the reps knowing everything, which is extremely dangerous, right? A rep leaves and you're in serious trouble because all the knowledge is up in their head. And now that's all in their ERP system and on their e-commerce system. They're in a much better place, not just because having an e-commerce system, but they've got all those business rules down pat. And when you get those rules in an ERP system, you can then integrate them to the e-commerce system and you can show things like, as a great example of that MOQ stuff, you can show them, I've got a purchase order coming in and even be really transparent with your customers, not just to say, we'll have it in two weeks. We've got an order coming in on the 5th of July with 200 free on it. We've got another one on the 10th of July with 500 free on it. Not just saying, we've got an order because how do you know if that order is going to cover your needs? And so to be super transparent with customers really forms the partnership between customer A, our customer and their customers, but they might have different levels of customers. They might have 50% of their customers they're happy to be that transparent with. They might have a small percentage of their customers they know that are often dealing, they're really just a second, second string supplier to them. And they don't want their competitors getting that data. So being able to customize at a customer or a customer group level, what levels of information you want to give them is super important as well. It's not like a B2C site where everybody gets the same view. You have to be very specific about what information and even how you treat some of those customers. We've got some of our customers that are just paranoid about their customers giving the login to their site to a competitor. There's technologies that we have to employ that like we've just done this thing called magic links so that when you go to log in, it's a passwordless login. Passwordless. Yeah, the link goes back to the person that's linked to that and you have to click on that. has to be the same session and it's not going to stop somebody from forwarding that, but it's going to make it a real pain in the neck that every time somebody's trying to use your login at a competitor, that's going to They have to forward the magic link for that individual session. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there's all of those little nuances that I guess if you take it back to the real world is that sales reps used to do out on the road. They have all these different ways that they treat different customers. 
when you're out on the road. I treat this person differently than I treat this person because I know that they've got th this sort of information or I know they're a large customer. And that's what the e-commerce website has to do. It has to emulate what happened on the road. It has to emulate that knowledge and it has to bring it into a systematized, consistent, yep. cleansed way. And the other thing yep. that, that I'm seeing as a benefit when businesses implement B2B e-commerce is it forces them to re-examine all of the processes quite holistically Absolutely. because if you're going to yep. because if you're going to translate a process from a more analog process into mm. a and convert it into a digital process sometimes they discover things that they didn't even know were happening in their business mm. at, at say a rep level or at a senior buyer level or whoever it might be yep. and as a result of that what oftentimes they discover is that being able to forecast for example a price change to a product or a group of products or a category of products they could never forecast what that was going to do to ultimately their retained margin or their unit economics. They couldn't really forecast yep. what that was going to be like because that would ultimately have to filter down through the sales reps before it would ever make it into the customer's hands. Yep. And so what I'm seeing is that a lot, of these, a lot of these brands, when they start reviewing their pricing model, their pricing tiers, their MOQ modeling, that they oftentimes, before they ever start thinking about implementing digital channels, all work through a process with them where they will greatly rationalize their pricing models. And yeah, they will move. They realize they will it's move just from, so complex. It's ridiculous. They can't even maintain it. They're losing money on products they didn't even know they were losing money on. And when they start looking at it, they go, okay, for, we, if we could move this, these 500 B2B customers that have 500 unique price lists, if we could move them into, say, four or five, major pricing tiers with the odd exception within those, the odd exception, then what we could do is we could say, okay, each of these pricing tiers can now be based on either an annual dollar spend. It could be based on a unit consumption. It could, it could be based on rules. And then everybody, we can round some people up and we can round some people down. And within reason, we can put all 500 of those customers into four or five purchasing bands and then it becomes mm. more transparent to them and it becomes more transparent to us and then we say okay within that band if you're at this band today if you only spend another 5000 a year with us you're going to yep. you're going to move to the in, into the next band and it's super transparent it's super easy for the customer mm. to know okay should i move some of my business from this merchant today and if i move this 5 grand from this merchant to this merchant because of their pricing transparency it makes it worthwhile for me to do that similar to the b2c world where we say okay there's going to be a free shipping threshold you spend another 20 bucks you're going to get yep. free shipping that's the equivalent in the b2b world is to say okay we're going to have pricing bands based on certain metrics and certain kpis of spend with us and then we can move you into a better band but we're not yep. going to negotiate every single sku and every single product every single time it's and we're not going to be a discounted band yeah it's just going to be a discount band and then what happens is and the beauty of that is not only does it make it more transparent for you and transparent for the customer but then if you forecast a base price change and you say okay if we make this change to the base price and then it filters down across our bands and we say okay if we forecast that out 12 months we know we're going to make an extra 3% average margin on the year on this set of SKUs. So it, it makes it really easy for them to understand the levers they need to pull to be able to be sustainable as yep, a business. That's right. Yeah. And what we find when we do implementations is that, as you were saying before, it allows businesses to examine their processes that have existed for decades in some case, because in the e-commerce world, as we say, there's nowhere to hide. So you've got your website, you've got your e-commerce application platform out there. And if your business rules aren't properly defined and transparent and easy to relay to customers, then you need to examine that. And often we'll go into an implementation thinking it's going to be a three-month job. 
And the customer comes back after a month and said, you know what, we need to think about some of these rules that we've got in here because they actually don't make sense and none of us really understand them. And we want to just re-examine all of them and put that as part of the implementation. That's fine. It means that as part of the e-commerce implementation, we've helped streamline a customer's business processes, which is always good. And I'm sure that you guys start in similar place to what I do is I, when I first get into a business, one of the first things I do is I ask them to give me a sample of say 10 products and the product data associated with it. And I ask them to give me a sample of 10 customers and the customer data associated with them. I just give me a sample so that I can see what the state of their data is in. Because oftentimes these B2B businesses that have maybe had print catalogs historically, or maybe they've had PDF catalogs, or they've had CSV catalogs, they don't necessarily understand what the difference, say, for example, between unstructured data and structured product data is. They don't know what that means. And they don't know what that means through the lens of an e-commerce experience. They don't know what it means when you say, I need to understand what your parent-child relationship and your products are between the parent and the variant products that sit underneath that. And what are the linkages that need to tie those products together? Because that's all currently in a salesperson's head. It's not even in their ERP. Those linkages aren't even in their ERP yet. So I think by understanding all the gaps or all the inconsistencies in their product data, that can tell you, that can be a really good guide as to how simple or complex these projects tend to turn out to be. Because as you say, they have to get really clear about the data that they need against their products in a consistent way. And they have to get really clear about the customer information and customer data and customer hierarchies and organization, the way that they manage that. They need to really understand that and they need to understand the impact of that on the ultimate customer experience on those digital channels, especially if they're not just going to go out to an owned e-commerce channel. If now they're going to start pumping this out to marketplaces and social and, and yep, all the other all digital that. channels yep. that they can Nowhere sell through, to hide. there's yep. no, they just cannot deal with all of this manual patchwork quilt of salespeople mm. papering over a poor yep. system internally. So salespeople are awesome in the sense that they can paper over a lot yep. of shit. I was working with one with one customer and their salespeople were so good, they were actually working in the ERP, which just happened to be Odoo in this case, but they they had zero consistency in the way that they structured their product data in terms of parents and variants and everything else, but the salespeople all knew. And they were using Odoo's point of sale app internally as their own right. system to search yep. for and find products and then send that information over to the customer. But when we started to think about, okay, that's fine and good for the way that you do it today when a, cu- when a sales rep is literally sitting in front of a person, that's great. Mm. But what happens when that sales rep is no longer there to physically hold their hand through the end-to-end buying process, then what? And it starts to yeah, get pretty right. scary when you start to it's untake that. It's just not scalable. Yeah. No. Yeah. And you're right. The very first, so we sign a deal, our very first meeting is about data. We don't even talk to them about what the website's going to look like because you can't make decisions about how a mega menu is going to be structured or how a product grid's going to look until you understand their data and understand how that data is put together, where the source of truth for that data is. Back 20 years ago, the ERP was the god in terms of everything must happen in our ERP. But these days, that's not necessarily the case. Often it could be a PIM system. It could be... Yeah, PIMs are prevalent now. And ERPs, a lot of ERPs, sometimes they have been around for a long time and they've just got a lot more lipstick on the front of them. There's still these big grunty things behind it. And if you look underneath the covers, they're the same as they really were 
25 years ago when they were being used on, you're probably too young, Jason, but wise terminals and oh, yes. things like that. Yeah, thin you know, clients, really, everything yeah, else. Yeah, thin clients, yeah. and it's all evolved, and they're now all sort of web-based, but under, underneath, they're the same. And often the data structures are the same, like 30-character note lines and limited, you can't do weird characters like registered trademarks in them and stuff like that. So ERPs often fall down when it comes to rich content and being able to have structured data and define your own fields. A lot of ERPs, it's their dictionary, do that. it's their schema, you can't touch it. And so it's about sitting down and saying, okay, where is your data going to sit? Is it going to be that we get all of the raw data from your ERP about the business rules, what its condition code is, what the pricing is, what the stock code is and all of that. And then we bring that out onto the e-commerce and you manage that in the CMS, all the rich content in the CMS, or are you going to get that from a PIM? And those decisions often come around about who's going to manage that data. We were talking to a prospect yesterday. It was actually interesting. We were showing them some functionality that we'd done for another site about a parts finder. So we do quite a bit in the automotive industry and we're looking at that parts finder and i don't know if you can still hear me you there yep sorry yeah, about okay. that yep. sorry you dropped out yeah but we we're looking at that parts finder and they said can we have that we said i said yeah but do you have the data do you have any data and they said oh we've got a bit of it and i said it's a sort of thing that sort of thing you can't go live with a bit of the data because when yeah, the it's kind of an goes, all or nothing kind of scenario. It's a, it's a very binary thing. Some of the things you can go live with without 100% of your data. You can go live on a website without 100% of the images because people, you can put a placeholder image there. But when you've got something like a parts finder that somebody wants to go in and say, here's my truck, I'm driving an Isuzu, this is the year, this is the model, and I want something to do with the undercarriage or something like that. If it comes up with two parts fit that, and you go, oh, that's because we don't have everything there. Customers then lose faith in that whole piece of technology and they, won't and they don't use it at all. all yeah it's interesting data is it's data for us it's all about getting that data right at the start and that's what we concentrate on look it sounds like we're very much aligned here this it's the first thing we discuss when i go in even before i start talking usually to a sales team because the sales team is usually the ones that feel the most threatened by e-commerce they're sure. like okay is, is the plan no to replace us ever been yeah i've heard there was a study done in the uk be there was a podcast in the uk and she did some studies that she'd never seen a business where salespeople got the sack because an e-commerce system got put in. It's they yeah. just become much more effective and a much better tool for the business than going out and just taking orders. And that, that swivel chair commerce is gone. It's got to go. And also, no matter how good a sales team is, no matter how big a sales team is, no matter how successful they are, there are certain markets and industries and regions and verticals where you can't, you physically cannot, you couldn't hire 10,000 sales reps. If you were going into a new market like India, for example, mm. and I had, I, I've had other guests on this podcast where they've spoken specifically to this, where they're talking about, and they're a B2B merchant, and they're talking about how when they go into a new, brand new region, usually a new country, it's physically impossible. They would not be able to hire enough bodies to physically get around that country to, yep. to even visit and onboard all of the different both distributors and resellers and retailers into their system, it would be physically impossible to do. Mm. Sure, at least with digital, they then can cherry pick which ones need a sales rep, 
versus the ones that, hey, let's just send them an email. Let's send them a digital pack. Let's send them some onboarding information, and then they can onboard themselves into our e-commerce system, and we get them up and running with a credit account within 30 days. And 85 to 90% of these customers in this region can be onboarded in that way. And then the other 10%, the other 15%, those who absolutely must have a sales rep because they're so big and they're so complex, we really need to have a, a strong relationship with them, which is the whole point of having sales reps in the first place. It That's is, right. it is for those, the, the, it's a, it, it, the relationship is required, right? Yep. Whether it be because of scale or whether it's because they just, they're a high needs client. Yep. It's just the way that it works and it's all about yep. resourcing. And so I, I think that you're a spot on. I haven't seen any clients that I've worked with that their goal or the outcome was to get rid of salespeople. No, yeah, it, was, it was A, let, let's, let's make our salespeople more happy for a start off mm. because no salesperson likes the shitty admin orders. work. They Terrific. don't like putting, they don't like punching orders into a bloody ERP. No. Nobody no. likes that. No, no. Even, in, even admin people hate that. That's so the right. reality is, why don't we take all the crap off their plate that they don't like doing? free up time for all the stuff they love doing, which is going and schmoozing and sourcing new products for existing customers and going onboarding new customers and knocking on doors and doing all the things that they do, going out to dinners and drinks and all the other things that sales reps love to do. It's probably a little Mm. bit less of that nowadays, post COVID, but still they love the relationship building side of their role and they hate the admin side of their role. And so if we can unburden them, then they'll actually enjoy their job more and they'll be much more performant as a result. And they can deal with more customers. And, you know, that, that example you gave in India, Australia is very much the same as that. Much smaller population. But if you think of if you're servicing customers anywhere west of where from Queensland, so anywhere west of Toowoomba, you've got yeah. a, a two-hour drive between each customer. The country yeah. is just so spread out too. And we hear that from lots of our customers. They've got sales reps that will be here in Brisbane that can service 20 customers in a day, but they just can't get out to the customers out west. And that has to be done online. And what you say about the 80-20 rules, we often see that is that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of the number of your customers, right? And so what that means is that 20% of your revenues coming from 80% of your customers. And if you think of the downstream things that happen on that, is that to take a customer of ours that's servicing the hospitality industry. So they're dealing from everything from Joe's little snack bar down the side down the street, who's buying some Chico Rolls and that that sort of stuff. I don't know if Chico Rolls are a worldwide sort of delicacy, but Chico Rolls, hot pies or whatever they are, pies, chips and all of that sort of thing, spending a couple of hundred bucks a month with them to selling to one of the major hotels that are spending spotless catering who do all of the catering for the major stadiums and things like that, right? So customers that are spending $100,000 a month with them to customers spending $100 a month with them. And the guys that are spending $100 a month with them know that they're going to be at the end of the credit collection chain. They know that they will just not pay until they get rung, and it's highly likely that they'll never get rung. So what about a lot of customers do? And you've got, if you've got, let's just take the numbers, if you've got 80 customers that are spending 20, between them $20 with you, and you've got 20 customers that are spending $80, those 20 customers are pretty easy to deal with. You're going to, and they're normally good payers, right? Because they're largely- They're the big boys and girls. They're the big boys and girls. And what a lot of our customers do is say to these smaller customers, happy to deal with you, we'll give you a 30-day account so that you're not having to pay for every transaction by credit card. But after that 30 days, we're just you need to give us your credit card details. You can mm-hmm. store that online. We securely store that with a tier one PCI like Braintree or eWay or something like that. And then on the 30th day, we're just going to sweep your account and have it paid for on credit card. So it yep. completely takes that. The cost, is, we often talk about the cost to serve. 
So you've yes. got a customer that's buying a hundred bucks a month from you and you're having to ring them up to chase that. Forget about the customer. You've just done your margin. If you're making 20% margin on that, that cost of that call has just wiped out all of that margin. So customers, B2B merchants need to find new ways to deal with the masses. You want the masses because they make up a lot. They help with the volume. Yes. But you've got to find new ways to deal with those masses because you can't afford to have a sales rep calling on them once a month and you can't afford to have a credit controller calling them once a month either. Spot on. And I think that is also the beauty of B2B e-com is that we now can get really specific and really granular around automated credit stops. We can have different yep. credit tiers. We can also have different payment methods to where if you're on if you're on credit stop, for example, then maybe we only show you credit card payment and you exactly. can only pay via yep. business credit card until yep. you clear your account. So mm. there's a lot more flexibility today, I think, in the B2B e-commerce experience. When we think about it, there's a lot more flexibility today to cater to those different tiers of clients that we need to cater to. That just didn't exist. That never used to exist. Everybody was put into the same box. They were treated in exactly the same way. The process that we collected payments and everything else was exactly the same. We had to standardize. We had to homogenize the process. That was the only way that we could scale historically. But now with digital commerce, we can scale the edge cases. Because right, the yeah. edge cases now become standardized and they're a completely digitalized end-to-end -end process that requires yep. virtually zero human intervention. And as yep. a result of that, we now can scale the unscalable in ways that we could never do before. Yeah, that's right. And often personalization is talked about in the B2C world. And so when you hit a site, it, it's supposed to know who you are and what age group you are and all of that sort of stuff that you can get that data. But the beauty about B2B is all of that stuff. You know who you the know, heck they normal, are. You know exactly what, what state they're in. You know what industry they're in. You know how long they've been dealing with you. That's B2B has got personalization down pat because that's all in normally in an ERP system that you've got. Yes. So you can start personalizing everything for customers. We've got a great example. As I said before, some of our customers deal with education New South Wales. And if you're selling, and it's a punch out scenario. So if you're on their, their sort of panel, you've got to use punch out. And they say to you, I actually went to a meeting with our customer in Education New South Wales in Sydney for this meeting. They were getting onboarded. And they said, now, you can't show us any, do not for any of the schools, show them any banners, advertising, or anything. The catalogue is the catalogue. That's what you've agreed with us. Don't try and sell us anything else. So how do you do that? Well, I want to have banners on my site, but now I can't show it for Education New South Wales. So the ability to have, we call it layering. So you can have a layer that says, okay, everybody, this layer applies to everybody but Education New South Wales. And so you mm -hmm. go and say, here's my banner, and it's got a layer of everybody but Education New South Wales. So the ability to say, I can not only have different pricing, different products and stuff like that, but I can even control the content, the look and the feel, and everything like that at a customer level. And some of our customers do that for their larger customers when they log into their site, especially in that hospitality example, the big end of town, so again, you treat your big end of town slightly different to your small end of town, is that when they log in, it's not our customer's look and feel, it's their own look and feel, so that the customer feels like they're logging in almost to an internal system. It's got their logo on it, it's got their messaging and all of that sort of stuff. And that's about personalizing stuff. And B2B is great for personalizing, because as I said, you know everything about that customer. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Now, how often are you seeing a situation where 
you've had to continue to build out additional functionality in your platform because, as you rightly pointed out, most of these ERPs, even the, even the supposedly newer and flashier ERPs, oftentimes they're saddled with tech debt in terms of the way that they were originally engineered. So they aren't oftentimes designed to be a PIM system. They aren't oftentimes designed to be an order management platform. They aren't designed to be a WMS. They aren't designed for all these other functions that oftentimes nowadays people expect their back office system to do or a series of back office systems to be able to achieve. And how often have you had to, for example, add functionality to your platform? I'll just give an example, like a PIM system where now you have to do some of the heavy lifting on the structuring of the product data and the housing of the product data where your system becomes the system of record for certain product data that literally yeah. doesn't live anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, that, that happened. The, well, as I said before, once upon a time, ERP was the center of the universe. And we've now find that move to really e-commerce has now become your e-commerce platform is the center of the universe. And because it's developed in a much more modern environment to some of these ERPs, as people go, can I just do all this on the ERP? And can you, sorry, on the e-commerce? And I actually don't even need that data in my ERP, do I? Why would I need it? Because I, or the only reason I need it in ERP is so I can send it out to e-commerce. And what they'll do in the ERP is all this data is being maintained in the e-commerce. In the ERP, they just have a little button that they can press to bring up the e-commerce website. And we've got a customer here in Brisbane. I was actually talking to them before that they sell that the podcasting equipment. And I got a store here in Brisbane and I went in, they use the ERP, an ERP we integrate to. I went in to buy a product and I said to them, I'm after this product. And they actually pulled up our website on the screen in the point of sale to bring it up and say, is that the product you're after? So they did all the searching on the website Mm-hmm. on the e-commerce website and then keyed the product into the ERP. So they're almost using the e-commerce website as their in-store. And then what we did for them, when I saw that, I said, because they're, they're cutting and pasting the stock code and then putting it into the ERP because they have trouble searching for it in the ERP. So I went back and said to one of my guys, can you just create a little button for me, for these guys, so that when they see that, they can just click on that and that'll just put the stock code in the clipboard so that they don't have to get over the top of yes. it and cut and paste it. Yeah, it's really interesting how the e-commerce, in, in fact, we've had prospects come to us and say, we've seen your software on so-and-so's, we use it all the time, we want to use it. And for a while there, we were only integrated into Pronto for 15 okay. years of our life. And we said, oh, what ERP do you use? And we said, they said, oh, XYZ or something like that. And we said, oh, we're only integrated into Pronto. They said, give me Pronto's number and I'm going to change ERPs so I can get your platform. So it's interesting wow. how... ERP became, I'll just get the ERP that suits my e-commerce. It we becomes see that the slave now, instead of the master. <laughs> exactly. So we've got, we're now integrated into pretty much any ERP, everything from SAP B1 to SAP HANA, Epic Core, all the Microsoft products. NetSuite. Uh, NetSuite, MYOB Advanced, all of that. And the great thing is these days is the advent of REST APIs has made that a lot easier than it would have been. When we integrated to Pronto 20 years ago, that was no simple task. We were lucky that we had worked there for a while before that. We had a bit of insight into that. But yeah, it's interesting that we've had several customers move ERPs, but stay on e-commerce platform because they just said, we're moving ERPs. Often it's a takeout. They've been bought out by a large conglomerate and they've got to use SAP HANA now. And we just say, yeah, no worries. We can move to that. So yeah, the e-commerce has really become the center of the universe that people want to put their a lot of their functionality in. And if the functionality doesn't relate to ERP, if it's only an e-commerce function, then they store it at front end. 
Completely. The logic on the front end now, in, in many cases, far outstrips the logic that's required Absolutely. and the yep. business rules that historically always had to live in the ERP. Now they live in the front end experience instead, yeah. which RP's makes complete sense. Plumbing. Yeah, it's the plumbing in the back end. It's all the pipes underneath the ground. And when you build your house, it's all the pipes underneath the ground. But the e-commerce is the house now. It's the front entrance. And how often are you seeing, there's t- sort of two questions that are tightly related that I'd love to, to know a little bit more about it from your perspective. One is historically B2B has been a portalized experience, meaning you, you don't see anything until you log in, you put in your username, your password, whatever it is. Oh, cool. Now I can see my catalog. I can see my pricing. I can see my MOQs, et cetera. But what I'm seeing now is that and in that model, the customer has to originate in the ERP. So it gets set up in the ERP. All the trading terms get set up. It gets synced to the e-commerce site so that you can see all the right things. But now I'm seeing more and more B2B brands than ever before use their e-commerce website as a customer acquisition channel. Yeah, and sure. so they will, they'll have different rules around what people can see as a guest. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes now they can actually create an account on the front end. They can see the most restrictive catalog that they have available. They can at least see the highest price that they have available on that given restricted catalog. Mm-hmm. And at least they can then transact. And if not be on account, then at least they can pay by business credit card on that first transaction. So that then becomes a source of leads for the sales team that didn't follow up on and go, hey, we saw you place an order through our website. Thanks very much. We'd love to sit down with you, find out a little bit more about your requirements, see if we can get you on a credit account. And that opens up a dialogue between the sales rep and this new potential customer that's originated through the front end because now the front end is open. Now the long tail is actually being indexed by Google, whereas a portalized experience, nothing's being indexed by Google. And so I'm seeing a lot of that. Plus, I'm seeing a lot of B2B brands wanting to establish a DDC channel and vice versa. So how much of those two scenarios are you seeing nowadays? Yeah, we see a lot of that. So back in the old days, typically what would happen is you have your brochureware website as a separate, you've got your www, and then this will be b2b.company.com.au. Or login dot or whatever it is. Yeah, (laughs) login or something like that. And So I reckon 80% of our customers now, their B2B e-commerce website is also their www so it's the same thing so you go to www.kinchrome.com.au one of our customers you can see all of their tools everything that those tools can do fully indexed by google and almost and in fact some of the things on some of our customers websites we've got customers that will allow some of their products to be bought in a b2c manner so they know that they're not upsetting their channel by selling these couple of products. And they might be products that the channel doesn't want to buy anymore. They might be two years old, they've been superseded, and they just have these older products online that they actually allow a true B2C experience to happen on that. And the importance, this is often what we see in some of our competitors, is that they do treat a B2B like a portal. It's just a portal. You shouldn't be able to do static content on it. Whereas a true B2B e-commerce website needs to start that journey right from the start of that customer acquisition piece. And you need to be able to treat a customer anything like a potential customer and what a lot of our customers also have is that they want their website to be they're selling products through a they're more of an influencer a good example was a customer of ours that did paper so they sell high-end paper but and that they're only selling that to massive printing companies that are going to print beautiful Ford brochures or something you might go into a car, probably not anymore, but like that you used to go into a car dealership to get or or annual reports or something like that, physical printing. So what they want to do is that they want the website, the www, to be an influencing website. 
so that then the buyer can go to their printer and said, I saw this paper on this website, that's what I want. Or I saw this timber on this website and I saw these beautiful photos of it used in a swimming pool environment or a beautiful house. And that's what, go to my architect and that's what I want. So it's not always about selling that specific product. It's sometimes about influencing the customer. But yeah, all of our customers, and that layering technology works real well there because I can then say that for the public, I just want to show the product the, I'm not going to show availability. I'm not going to show anything like that. I'm not going to allow ad to cut, but I'll layer it up so that they can see the image, all of the features. They can use all that faceted data to find that. They can then even click on a button and find a dealer that's going to sell that. And I can then use all of my intelligence in my e-commerce because my e-commerce system isn't only tracking orders that have been placed through e-commerce. It's also integrating every order that comes through EDI, manually entered or whatever. All of that comes out. So I know when somebody says, I want to buy that. So Kincrome's a good example. One of our customers is that they sell everything from mechanics tools to something that I used to have when I was on acreage uh, is a sort of, uh, you put all your poison for the for the weeds and that sits in yep. the back, right? The cust- Their customers that are going to buy the tools are different to the customers. So the agricultural stores will buy those products and the big tool companies will buy the other ones, right? So when I say I want to find a dealer that's going to sell me that product, the intelligence of the B2B says, I know that Andrew's agricultural products have bought that product. So give them a call. I'm not going to recommend that you go and get that from Total Tools because- The local automotive shop or Bunnings or whatever. sell that. And all you're going to do is annoy that customer at the end to say, I ended up buying, I went to Bob's Automotives and they didn't have that that weed sprayer, but you recommended. Of course they don't. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Having that, there's sort of, and there's that middle experience that you're talking about is where that- I'm going to allow you to be a customer of mine straight away. As long as you obey my rules about buying minimum order quantities and meeting a minimum order amount, and I'm not going to give you credit, I'm happy to deal with anybody. Let's not never knock back a sale. And then that gives me the ability to then have a sales rep come in and say, who are you? How can I help you? And can we make you a larger customer? Because you never know that very small customer might just be buying stuff. They might not be a very they might be a very small purchase, but they might be a potentially very large customer. They're just buying Correct. stuff off you because their normal supplier can't supply it. They Was find that a sock? Or... Yeah, they find you by searching on you, then they go, Oh, this is actually a pretty good deal here. And you can get business that way. So absolutely that term of portal. I actually don't really like it because it tells me that this is really just a front end for your ERP. And often front ends for ERP are as clunky as ERPs themselves. B2B buyers expect a B2C experience. Whereas Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, they were happy really just to get on and see products and things like that. But everybody's, everybody's a B2C buyer these days. So when they go to work and they go to buy something on a B2B website, they expect that B2C experience. They expect the faceted data. They expect to be able to see recommendations, alternatives, nice little pop-up modals, all of that sort of stuff to be able to compare products. But they want all the business rules obeyed as well. Yeah, I, I always say it's B2B is basically B2C but a whole lot more. Exactly, it's effectively yeah. we're You've creating, got to do everything creating, that B2C does, but a whole lot more. That That's right. And they still expect the same type of treatment that they would mm. get yep. from their Chat, rep, but they expect to receive that yeah. digitally. 
and they expect yep. to receive it digitally. And mm. they expect to be able to th do things like request a quote and get a response directly yep. through the digital system. They expect to be able to download tech packs and have images and videos and all the collateral they need to sell and even potentially point of sale material that they need to use on site yep. that they can download Absolutely. and print yeah. locally. Download and all their price so, lists and all of that. Oh, it's, it is phenomenal when you think about the additional layers of complexity in B2B versus B2C, but we now have the ability to do that at scale. And I think for me, yep. that's the thing that I try to help these brands understand that are B2B that maybe either have never done e-commerce before or they're on a system that's 15 years old and they haven't looked at it in, in, in 10 years. They don't even know where the mm. server is that runs the bloody thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, because of COVID, they had to start thinking about that. And then Bob or Jane, the senior sales reps have left the company and now, oh shit, now what do we do? And exactly. a, a lot of times there's got to be a very specific catalyst for some of these businesses. There's got to be, mm. there's got to be a pain point that hurts so bad and risks so much revenue that they have to make a decision. And yeah. I'm sure you've seen this as well. I was working and I think I've maybe mentioned this on the pod before, but I was working with a multi-billion dollar brand a few years ago. They had, z and they had, I think about 10 or 15 different business units worldwide and they had no e-commerce any, so they were B2B business and mm. they had no e-commerce across any business unit anywhere in the business. 100% of their sales was done via reps. Yeah. And I think to myself, how in the world can you be a multi-billion dollar business mm. these days and have zero e-commerce in your business? But that still happens. I remember years and years ago, and I can talk about it now because it's so far down the track. But years and years ago, I was working with Honda Australia, not the motor vehicles, but all the small engines, power tools, marine, etc. So everything except automotive. And they were doing an e-commerce implementation for the very first time. And the only reason that they were doing that is because head office in Japan, at the same time they were forcing them to do e-commerce, they were also forcing them to upgrade to SAP from their local ERP and they wanted to do this big bang project where they'd yep. upgrade their ERP so that they could integrate with home office in Japan. But then they also wanted to offer B2B e-commerce across all these different business lines. And I'm thinking to myself, this was a several hundred million dollar a year business in Australia alone. And they mm. did zero B2B e-commerce. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm still a little bit surprised. I shouldn't be because I've encountered this so many times. But I'm still a little bit surprised that when a potential client contacts me out of the blue and says, hey, I think we need to have a talk. I, we need some help with our B2B e-commerce. And I'm going, great. What, what do you do today? We don't. And yeah. it's, wow. It's, it's, like, it's still, um, it still shocks like me when a business it, you know, does. Yeah, it's yeah like, like you're saying. It's ago, like not probably, having an opposable thumb. It's like, how the heck? Yeah, or 30 years ago, probably not having a fax machine because that was the way you got all your orders 30 years ago. It was a fax machine and everything came through that. And a lot of younger people today will probably have to Google what a fax machine is. But today, not having a B2B e-commerce platform is similar to that. It's, I think you wouldn't, you'd be lucky to survive 10 years. You certainly can't be scalable. And it's just insane that you wouldn't have one these days. And I think, and maybe we're getting close to the close of our time together, but I think one of the things that is forcing a lot of these brands to rethink their go-to-market is, uh, there's a number of factors, but one of the biggest factors is that it used to be if you were a manufacturer or you were an authorized local distributor or wholesaler, you oftentimes, especially in countries like Australia, New Zealand, smaller countries, there'd be one. There'd be one distributor for the whole country. And basically, they had a monopoly. And so any reseller or any B2B buyer that wanted to buy that product, they had no choice. They had to go to them, and it didn't matter how shitty the buying experience was. They had a gun yeah. to their head. They especially had to buy. Especially if it was buy. a big brand. Oh, they just had no yeah. choice. And yeah. nowadays, I think manufacturing brands that are pointing wholesalers and distributors – 
they're not giving lifetime sole distributorships anymore. They're saying, yeah. hey, it's open slather. Sure, you're going to be a preferential distributor and you get preferential pricing, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to take on, if we take on a distributor in Queensland, it doesn't mean we're not going to take a distributor on in the Northern Territory, right? We're going to do that. We're going to have a, a unique distributor per state and you're all going to compete against each other. And hey, it's up to you about differentiating yourself from your fellow distributors and wholesalers in the market, right? And so I think there's more competition in the B2B space than there ever used to be from a merchant perspective. And that's forcing the hand of some of these brands. And also when we think about rising inflation costs, rising wage costs, when we think of all the things that have happened since COVID and mm. the following on aftermath of COVID, I think a lot of these brands, are they're being forced to do more with less. Yeah. And they just don't have the capital to go out and hire three, four, five, ten 10 more field sales reps. And they're going, how can we do more with what we have today and our current field sales team? How can we make them more efficient? How can we make their jobs more enjoyable? How can we unburden the admin team so that they can actually be just dealing with customer service issues and return logistics and all those other things that we need to be doing as a good brand? How can we do all of that, but also increase our sales at the same time? Because yeah. historically, those were at odds with each other. It was like, yeah. if we want to increase sales, we got to increase salespeople. They moved in tandem and geometrically together. Right, now yeah. they, they don't. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on manufacturers, wholesalers, and distributors now to do more with less. And e-commerce is the way to get that done. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to is that, and I was talking to our, one of our marketing guys the other day, and he's talking about this year being the year of productivity. It's all about that productivity. And you talk about like keeping, making our people more, our customers more productive. But it's also about making their customers more productive. If you think about that B2B experience, and I always say there's sort of two types of B2B, right? There's the wholesale where you've got a, a manufacturer selling to a wholesaler and then they're selling to a retailer or they're selling to a retailer that's selling it on. Then you've got the other type of B2B where those products, it's typically office products selling consumables into mining companies, equipment into mining companies, that MRO type environment where you've got a, let's just say you're selling into hospitality and it's the chef that's ordering it at the end of the night or the bar stuff. If you think about it, if you said, to, if we always talk about what do you say at a barbecue? Oh, I work for someone. What do you do? You don't say, you say I'm a chef. You don't say I'm a person who orders stuff from a hospitality store's website, right? So no. their job isn't, so you want to make it so that they can, our customers want to make it so their customers, the ones that are ordering, can get back to their real jobs as quick as they can. So that experience about how do I quickly get online and how do I quickly order is super important because if you're telling a chef, this is what you've got to do at the end of the night, you might lose that chef because part of his job is so shitty that he's got to go get on this crappy website at the end of the night and order all this stuff. But if he can get on a really great website and do it, and they're the things that what we see a lot of is with the advent of B2B e-commerce and some of these marketplaces that often are a bit of a Dutch auction on pricing, right? They're set up at an industry level and they'll go to an industry and say, we've got all of your suppliers to bring all of their products onto the, pro and the product and you just can go and buy the cheapest one of everything. And that is just a race to the bottom on margin and is not going to do mm -hmm. anybody any favours. So what our customers try and concentrate on is say, buy from our website. It's a much better experience. We're going to give you all these other things that happen on their website, like that stock take functionality and all of that. And then price goes out of the price isn't in the conversation anymore. 
I'm going to stay with XYZ because they give me a great buying experience and they allow my staff to get back to their jobs and do the jobs that I've actually employed them to do rather than spending an hour a day ordering replenishments. And that's where price, you don't get asked about price anymore. And you make such a good point because it's mimicking some of the things we're seeing in the D2C world, which is that oftentimes you can get certain products, certain deals, certain experiences through the DDC website that you cannot get literally any other way. You can't get it. You can't get it through the physical retail store. You can't get it through the retailer. You can, you can literally, there are certain things you can only get directly through that web experience with the manufacturer, wholesaler, distributor. And I think it's exactly the same in the B2B world. It's okay. Sure. We also sell through these marketplaces, but we have a marketplace range. And then we have yep. a, a direct buyer's range and mm. never the twain shall meet. And yep. so we're going we're gonna to send out discount if you're a, I don't know, let's say you're a butcher and we're going to send out the discount cuts of meat to the marketplace because that's what the marketplace wants. But if you yep. want the premium stuff that you have to buy it direct B2B through us because yep. that's the only way you can get it. And yep. so I think that there is some serious differentiation going on now where it didn't used to be. It used to be that B2B was so undifferentiated that the true differentiation happened at the B2C layer, but it didn't happen at the B2B layer. Now, I think there's differentiation in product. I think there's differentiation in the offer. I think there's differentiation in the way that we treat specific tiers and bands of customers and the way that we service them. I think there is personalization is one thing, but then I think there's also differentiation. And I think we can now achieve both of those things using modern e-commerce technology that even five years ago was very difficult to deliver. Yeah, that's right. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next five years. It's You wonder, you look at where we were five years ago and then you see all the stuff that we're doing today. And a lot of the stuff that we get involved in comes from our customer base. We, It's very hard for us to sit up here as software developers and say, this is what we think the market should do. It's our customers out there that are saying, what about this and what about that and things like that and then we listen to that and we put it together because they're the ones at the coalface they're the ones that are really dealing with you know their customers and get an understanding of what the demand is so that's how we develop our product is to understand what our hundreds of customers are saying to us and how we should see that out in fact lucy that product i talked about was created because we were going we're out in the road and we would drop into customers and they'd tell us the story. I'm getting all the EDI, I'm getting all these guys at the bottom. I just can't get the guys in the middle. Can you guys create something that will do that? And we eventually, like any software developer, said, yeah, that'll be about three weeks, three or four weeks development. Here we are six years later, still developing the software because one of the really tricky things with purchase orders is everybody's purchase order is different. So you can't, mm-hmm. it's something you can't control. So you get multi-page purchase orders. You get, we've got one customer in the US that gets one purchase order a month from a chain of 300 retailers and the one purchase order covers all 300 stores and store one might be page one two and three store two will be page four and it's just one pdf that comes in and and the first time that came in it blew lucy up (laughs) we just had to and then we said what is this and they said oh this is how this big retailer orders and this was a purchase order that used to take their staff seven days to get into their erp system just the sheer volume of it. Now, Lucy does take about 40 minutes, but nobody even knows it's arrived. It's just comes and 40 minutes later, that purchase orders three 300 different sales orders in their ERP. So they're the sorts of things that we would have never dreamt about doing five years ago, but are now completely automated. Wow. Absolutely phenomenal, Andrew. I, I've seriously enjoyed this conversation. If people 
want to learn more about your platform or if they want to reach out to you directly and they want to have a conversation with you. Your website is, and I'll just say it out and I'll just make sure that I get this right. It's commercevision.com. And yes. if they want to learn more about Commerce Vision, the platform, is that the best place to go or should they reach out to yeah. you directly, say, via LinkedIn? Look, no, just either LinkedIn or yeah, just go to the website and there's a contact page there and yeah, we'll be in contact with you. Very happy to talk to people about e-commerce at any time. We live it, we breathe it, especially B2B. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I absolutely love it. And that's why I wanted to get you on because, look, there's so few of us specializing in the B2B space. And so it's awesome to have these kind of conversations right. where we, where we kind of speak the same on, language. Jason. Yeah, thanks <laughs> It's been my much. absolute pleasure. And if, you, if someone came to you today and they said, look, we're considering B2B e-commerce for the very first time. We've never done e-commerce before. We're a we're $20 million a year GMV B2B business, but we're doing everything manually today. What would your top one, two, three recommendations be as they first start off down this track, this journey, because it's a journey, it's not a destination. It's going to take them a long time and they're going to have to yep. be working on this forever. It's not, a, it's not a fire and forget channel. What would be your top advice for somebody who's just starting out in the B2B e-commerce world? So my number one advice is, and it's a saying we have, don't try and boil the ocean because you'll never do it, right? So, so we have some people come and say, okay, so I want to have all of this functionality and we want to go live in six months. And I would say, you are starting from nothing. Can I recommend that you get the base load first and get that right, because often you'll get that and then you'll have some reconsiderations about other things that you thought you wanted to do and now don't maybe have the bang for buck that you thought you were going to do. So as you say, it's a journey, it's not a destination and we say don't try and boil the ocean. The second thing is understand your customers, understand what they want and what drives them and also understand your data. So the data is the other big thing, is to make sure that those data pieces are in line or be prepared that they need to be in line and also be prepared that this generally e-commerce within a business is not something that people can do part-time. Mm -hmm. You need to have people dedicated to it. It's a, for a lot of our customers, I was speaking to a, we've got a customer that's in the agricultural industry and it's owned by a guy, the business started in 1945, so nearly 100-year-old business, 80-year-old business. Wow. They sell parts to, we often say that their customers have Mars bars for fingers. So they're motor mechanics out in the bush that are fixing John Deere tractors. And Alan dropped in the other day, he's got a unit on the Gold Coast and he rang me up and said, oh, I'm on the Gold Coast, do you want to have a chat? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And he drops in, he's in his 80s himself, still working in the business. His father started the business in 45. And he said, I'm actually going to go up to Townsville on Tuesday because that branch is only at 90%. And I'm just not happy with that. He said, all the other branches are at 98% digital. He said, we no longer take email orders and everything that we do comes through the website. And if I showed you the website, it is truly, you look at it and go, geez, that's an ugly website. But he, it does all of the stuff. People can go in and say, I've got a John Deere, I've got, the, it's a ROP frame, and then it brings it up and it says, here's your, all your parts. And he, all his competitors have gone the super glossy, beautiful website. And when he talks to his customers, he says, I just love your website. I know it's old and ugly, but that's what I love. Because we've gone to him and said, Alan, do you want to do a refresh? And he's going, no, my customers like it the way it is. And that's what I mean about understanding your customer. Everybody thinks that I want a glossy new website and I want it to look like the iconic or whatever. And, and that's a, when you're talking about not a lot of people like us in the business, often we will get a customer and they've got a marketing person who knows a lot about B2C and they want their B2B website to be like the iconic or like Sephora or something or like, like the that. Apple store or the whatever. The Apple store and stuff like that. And 
you've got to understand who your customer is and what they're looking for and what their level of, as I said, the Mars bars for fingers out there, they want something simple that they can see a part and click on it and say, add to cart and check out. They don't want these things popping up and they don't want busy sites and things like that. So understanding your customer is super important to be able to succeed in B2B. Could not agree more. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now we're at the very fortunate time of the podcast where I get to flip the script. I get to hand the microphone over to you so that you can ask me one question. Any question you like can be personal, can be professional, completely up to you. So I'd love to hand the microphone over to you, Andrew Rogenkamp. What is your question for me? Okay, Jason, I do have a question. You lived in New Zealand for a while. so Almost 30 years. Ex- 30 years. Okay. And you've still got your American accent, obviously. So we've got a, we've got a, I saw you lived in Christchurch as well. We've just purchased a business in Christchurch, so I know it well. Why did you move to Mexico? Oh, look, lots of reasons. I think one of them, just truthfully, during COVID, it was like Australia. COVID was pretty rough on Kiwis oh, and the, the way that the country Absolutely. locked down. It was yeah. pretty rough. We yeah. didn't travel. My wife and I love to travel. We didn't travel for over three years because we didn't know if we could get back into the country. So honestly, making up for lost time was part of it. Second of all, I think weather played a big part of it. We were, it's pretty cold. It's pretty wet, pretty rainy. I've got family. My sister, my brother-in-law, my two nephews, and my mom all live in Brizzy, actually. And, okay. uh, and they escaped for the better weather a long time ago. And mm. I, because I grew up in Southern California, I'd been to Mexico multiple times anyway, and I'd always loved Mexico. I'd always loved the culture. I'd always loved the people. always loved the food, the weather, etc. And really, we were looking for a place that was relatively easy to immigrate to. And yep. lots of places around the world make it difficult. They make it almost impossible to immigrate there, no matter how successful you are or whatever. And Mexico has this amazing open arm view of the world where, yeah, there's financial thresholds that you have to meet. But from a temporary residency perspective, it's probably one of the most immigration friendly places on the planet. Okay. So it was a place we, we could immigrate to. It was a place that I knew we could probably make a pretty good life out of. And we wanted a new adventure. And we hadn't had, it, we hadn't had travel adventures for over three years. And so my wife and I said, look, let's give it a crack. New Zealand, Australia, they're not going anywhere if it all turns pear-shaped, then you can always, you can always back, move. Yeah. We can always yeah. come back. But so far, we've really enjoyed it. We agreed early on, look, we're not going to go to one place and settle down straight away. We're going to travel for about a year. And we're going to decide it's basically going to be up to my wife. She's going to be the one that gets to choose where she feels like she could make a home. She's the bus I driver. Can, yeah. 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 I can make a home almost anywhere. I can figure out a way to, to, to survive almost anywhere. But she's got to feel like, hey, we can actually make a good go of this. And it feels a little bit like home. Plus, mm-hmm. I took Spanish in high school was pretty rough after leaving New Zealand, but I'm picking it back up again pretty quick. And so definitely having that language foundation was also very attractive. So there's a few of the things Excellent. we were looking All at. Right. Interesting. And look, it's been a, it's been, I won't say it's been easy. It's been a challenge, but we've managed to buy a car. I've managed to get a driver's license. I've managed to get my tax number. I've managed to, I've managed to do all the technical things that you need to do when you move into a new country. And yep. I tell you, it's a real feeling of accomplishment because I tell you, bureaucracy in this country is pretty full on at times. Doing anything through the government is a process. It is a real process. And of course, it's all in Spanish. I feel like we've accomplished a few important things already. That's good. As I say, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? When things are a little bit hard, you get the rewards for it. 100%. Listen, Andrew, I have seriously enjoyed our conversation. You've been a joy to talk to. You're super clever and clear about what you guys are doing and what you bring to the market. Look, I wish you every success. I'd love to get you back on the podcast another 12, 18 months. And yeah, like, sounds good. I'd love to see what you've added to the platform in that time. And, and also, you're at the coalface of the changes happening in the B2B marketplace. So I really appreciate your insights from someone who's living and breathing this every single day. I've really enjoyed the conversation. If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net. 
click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.